Welcome to astronomy. Let me go ahead and talk to you for a few minutes about the class. Our focus is going to be on the solar system and the stars and galaxies. In many universities, there are actually two first-year courses in astronomy. The first semester is the solar system, the sun and the planets, basically. And then a second semester covers everything beyond. Whereas, since we only have one semester class here, I've decided to just combine it into everything into one course. We cover the solar system and the stars and galaxies. It kind of reminds me of uh, the greatest parenthetical in the scriptures, Genesis 1.16. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And by the way, he also created all the stars. So uh, that's kind of how I feel about our class, the solar system and the stars and galaxies. This class is a very visual class. We'll be doing PowerPoint presentations throughout, which I will be posting on Angel. Anybody not familiar with that? If not, you can talk to me during the break. I just had my first uh, training session today. I hope to post all these PowerPoint presentations uh, there for you to download. So uh, it's very visual, you know, given the nature of the subject matter. When we're looking at, at the solar system, the stars, and the galaxies, we have to have a visual presentation of this material. So if you're wanting a course where a professor just lectures out of a textbook with it open in front of him, this is not the class that you want. The syllabus I posted today after I learned how to use Angel, uh, so you can uh, download that. And the class notes for the first uh, chapter, which we'll be covering tonight, will be there tomorrow. I don't know if we're going to have three exams or four. The syllabus says four. Last year, we ended up having three. I teach this course in the spring. And the reason we had three was because I was ill one class period, and I, I had to skip. And another class period that was during the power failure, where uh, you know the whole university was closed down. So we missed two classes last year, and as a result, we had to kind of reorganize. We ended up only covering uh, material for three exams. So I say three. The syllabus says four. Theoretically, we'll have four exams. But something I'm doing a little bit different this year is we're going to have a weekly quiz. And that will be at the end of the class. And I've got the first quiz with me right here. And it is, uh, it'll be a five-question quiz covering the most basic information that we cover in class. This is not designed to be trick questions or difficult. This is just to be sure that you're here and you paid some semblance of attention. Those will be given probably the weight of one test uh, over the course of the semester. Last year we had homework. This year I've decided not to assign homework. And in lieu of that, we're doing these short quizzes each night. I will be taking attendance each night. And uh, we'll be following the college attendance policy, which I found out today for our class would mean any more than three misses and you uh, are dismissed from the class. Optional observing sessions, we'll probably have several of these at my home for extra credit, uh, where you can come out to our home and see, look through one of my two telescopes, and I'll show you images of those telescopes here in a few minutes, but they're just premier optical telescopes, some of the best you'll find uh, anywhere, and you'll have an opportunity to look through them. One of them is very portable, it's very large, but it's very portable, and it's my hope that we're going to be able to do remote observing sessions, at least a few, where we take this thing 20 or 30 miles out of town where you're away from that light pollution that just really degrades any 
viewing through a telescope. For example, we couldn't set up a telescope here on campus. We could, but you wouldn't see a whole lot because of the saturation from the light. Contact info is on the syllabus, my email address and telephone number, and uh, you're free to call me at any time with any questions that come up. These observing sessions, by the way, are going to be very impromptu because they're just totally dependent on the weather and the astronomical forecast, which I monitor closely. So what I will be doing is be sending these mass emailings out to you, uh, letting you know probably that day that I'll be bringing the telescopes out that night uh, to the driveway anyway, and uh, you're free to come out to the house. And in those emails, I'll give you instructions on how to get there. It's about 15 minutes from here. About me? Well, as Holly said, I'm an attorney, uh, also a CPA, graduated from Harvard Law School, attended Harvard Divinity School. I'm also, like Holly said, an author. I haven't written millions of books, but I do write several books. In fact, this year, I've contracted to write 12 books, and that's in addition to the uh, newsletters that I write. I brought a few of these in with me tonight. This is my 700-page uh, annual church and clergy tax guide. IRS National Office uses that. This is my main legal book, this 1,200-page treatise, Pastor, Church, and Law. This is the third edition of this book, 2000. I'm in the process of writing the fourth edition right now in a series of four books, and the first of which came out last uh, fall, and the, the second, third, and fourth will be published this year. Those are three of those 12 books I have to write, and I do a bi-monthly newsletter church law and tax report. Okay, so that's what keeps me busy. Other courses I've taught at Evangel, well, this is the fifth year I've taught this, cor this course, and I taught business law for about seven years. This is my fourth grade Sunday school class. <laughs> it's an intense academic hothouse in there, believe me. But... Uh, Here's some of the instruments, cameras, and telescopes that I have owned over the years. These are the ones that are currently, uh, that I currently own. And this is my newest acquisition, which is that big 18-inch uh, diameter portable telescope. This folds down in about two minutes, and I can put it in the back of my Yugo and take it out to a deep, deep sky deep, or dark side and then set it up in just about uh, five minutes maximum. This is an Argo Navis digital setting circle, which helps you to navigate and point to just anything you want. I had a guy say to me just Sunday that he got this telescope for his son, 10 years old, for Christmas. And he said, we took it out to use it the other night, and we couldn't see anything. And my son came in, and he was crying, and uh, they were so disappointed. So I, he said, why is that? And I said, well, what kind of telescope is it? He didn't know what it was. So I said, well, bring me the owner's manual. So he brought me the owner's manual, and I looked at it. And uh, I said, it's no wonder you can't see anything. This is a Walmart telescope, two-inch diameter refractor, and probably better than what Galileo used. But uh, nonetheless, it was so primitive and crude that uh, the light-gathering power for, of that telescope compared to this, this one I calculated roughly is about 81 times more light-gathering power. So you just can't expect to see anything with a telescope like that, especially from the city. And I'll tell you what, so many parents destroy whatever interest their kids have in astronomy by selecting the wrong telescope. 
And we'll talk about that in Chapter 3 when we talk about telescopes. There's my, uh, what I call my observing telescope, and here's my principal uh, imaging telescope. And I just use that exclusively for taking photos or taking CCD images. So it's probably the hardest thing I've ever learned to do in my life. It took me five years of absolute and utter failure before I learned how to use this telescope here. Not the telescope so much as the camera, this little gray box you can just barely see. It is so complicated. I read thousands of pages of manuals and books. Nothing worked. Trial and error. I almost quit a thousand times, but I was driven back by my desire to take images of what I was seeing through the telescope. And at the verge of utter abdignation, I, uh, I contacted the manufacturer of the camera, and I said, I give up. I can't figure this out. 33,000-page tax guy, or internal revenue code, it's nothing compared to this. And I said, I will fly to Santa Barbara, California, to your factory, and I will sit down and somebody show me how to use this camera. And they said, we can't do that. We don't give personal tutoring. I said, well, thanks. But they said, there are two people that do. And they gave me the names of two professional astronomers. I contacted one. He was at Kitt Peak Observatory outside of Tucson, Arizona. And within a few months, I was there spending an entire night with him from 5 p.m. till about 5 a.m. And during that night, it was like taking a drink out of a fire hydrant. I mean, so much information was flying by me, but I ingested enough that by the time I got home, within a week, I was taking images. I was hooked. And from that day, that was about three years ago, to this, that was, a, that was with a much uh, smaller telescope than you see here. This is really a world-class, semi-professional instrument. And uh, during some of those observing sessions at my house, we'll have you look at an imaging session with that instrument. With that instrument, we can image objects literally billions of light years away. To just take a 15-second a image of a galaxy cluster and have it appear on the laptop screen and to know that those little smudges you see there, that we just took this image, are a cluster of galaxies 300 million light years away. It's just it's an awesome experience. And I'll tell you what, humankind is divided into two groups. I've tested this repeatedly. 90% will look at that image and say, that's nice. Where's my video game? And 10% will be changed for life because of it. And that's what may happen and will happen to some of you. So be careful. I'm warning you. Well, here's a picture I took uh, with that big telescope just uh, two months ago. Comet Holmes, you may have read about in the media or heard about. That was with a little three-inch telescope that I've got. It's an apochromatic refractor. And then with the big telescope, I took this picture of it. You can see the coma of the comet right here. And, uh, you know, I took that picture. It's a 30-minute image. And you say, well, how can you take a 30-minute image and, it, and you see pinpoint stars here? Well, that's a good question. In space, everything's moving at 15 degrees per hour. If you put your hand out like this at arm's length, the width of your fist is about five degrees, approximately. So it's about three fists at arm's length is 15 degrees. That's how much objects appear to move in the heavens because of the diurnal motion, the rotation of the Earth. When you're imaging an object for more than a tiny fraction of a second, you have got to counteract that tracking. No amount can track perfectly. So you have to use auto-guiding 
And we'll talk about that during a star party, and I'll explain how that works. Very complicated. But I took the, the picture. And by the way, all astronomical cameras, all the high-end ones, are all black and white. So how do you take color pictures? You take the same image through a clear filter and then through a green filter, a red filter, and a blue filter, and then software combines them all. So this was seven and a half minutes through clear, red, green, and blue for a total of 30, and the software combined it into this, popped on the screen. I thought, man, that is a decent image. So I sent it off to the Springfield newspaper, although I don't subscribe to it, and also to Astronomy Magazine. And I was flying home from speaking at a conference uh, in Orlando in November, and I was in the Dallas airport, and Holly called me, Dad, you're on the front page of the Springfield newspaper. And uh, there's that picture right there with me standing out here with my uh, telescope. <laughs> and in the current issue of Astronomy Magazine, that same picture is featured. Here's a picture I took, my most recent picture, taken just a, about four weeks ago, of a star cluster, the Pleiades star cluster. See that bluish coloration there? That is the Raleigh scattering, which is the very same phenomenon that causes the sky to appear blue. And it causes lights in a fog to appear to illuminate the whole cloud. We'll talk about that in a future chapter. So, you know, why is the sky blue? We didn't know the answer to that up until 100 years ago. And here are some random pictures I've taken over the past few years. That's a galaxy, uh, Bode's galaxy in the Big Dipper. It's about 11 million light years away. Here's a picture I took of the center of the Milky Way galaxy. The Ring Nebula, that won an award in an astronomy magazine. The uh, Crab Nebula, the greatest 4th of July explosion in human history. July 4, 1054 AD, this erupted. A star, a large star, erupted. And for a period of weeks, radiated with the brilliance of 10 billion suns. What in the world causes that? Here's a, the Sculptor Galaxy, about 11, 11 million light years away. I took the, this is my first color picture. And uh, not long after I got back from Kitt Peak, and I thought, man, that turned out pretty well. It's a three and a half hour image. And uh, so I sent that to APOD. You ever heard of that? The Astronomy Picture of the Day? You ought to do a, a bookmark that, APOD. Marvelous images every day. Man, I'll tell you, you want an inspiration. It's like a daily devotion looking at these things. And most of them are from the Hubble Space Telescope or some of the great land-based telescopes. And you ever send an email and you wish you could retract it? Well, that's what I kind of felt like after I sent that. You've got to be kidding me. All these marvelous photos they portray with these massive instruments. Who am I with my little five-inch telescope at that time? from my garden taking this picture. So, but a, an astronomer in Germany called me about a week later, and he said, Sehr gut, uh, congratulations on your APOD. And there it was for uh, uh, December 14th of 2004. So it's kind of like winning the Nobel Prize, you know, getting, the, uh, getting <laughs> an APOD. Actually, I did win the Nobel Prize. You may have not have heard that, but uh, when I was a freshman in college, I majored in, I was a physics major. Uh, because I played basketball in high school, uh, my coach pulled me out of any accelerated class because he thought it might impair my basketball skills. So 
I didn't take calculus, but most of the uh, students, freshman physics majors in college had already had calculus, and I just felt I was too far behind to catch up. So I switched my major to government, ended up going to law school. This would be pre-Christian days. And, uh, but when I was a freshman, I thought a little bit outside the box, I admit it. And uh, I came up with this theory that I presented to my physics professors, and they laughed me to scorn. Ah, uh, that's ridiculous. And uh, they dismissed it. And so I dismissed it. Well, it wasn't too many years ago. I was reading an article, and I discovered that somebody about 15 years ago won a Nobel Prize in physics for the very same idea that I had, the theoretical existence of the Higgs boson. And that was the idea that I'd come up with. So I kind of claim partial credit for that. <laughs> so you can tell your parents, I got a Nobel laureate as my astronomy professor who's never taken a course in astronomy. So there you go. It's not the classical education that counts class. It's the innate ability. Do you know the word education in Greek comes from two words, a and dukare? This is the classical Greek notion, platonic, that it literally means to draw out of. And the, the traditional notion was you have all the knowledge that you're ever going to have innate within you. And the goal of education is to pull it out of you, what's there. It's kind of a bizarre theory when you think about it. But uh, when you sit down for a time, I'm not going to study. I know this stuff. Anyway, here's my website, seetheglory.com, on which is displayed the uh, most, many of my better images anyway. And here's the start screen. Yes, look at this quote from Johannes Kepler, a name that we'll return to many times because of a simple equation he came up with four centuries ago. P squared equals R cubed. And it's that simple equation that we use to this day to measure the mass of galaxies billions of light years away. It's unbelievable. One of the great accomplishments in the history of science. That equation was modified slightly by Newton. But uh, here he says, the treasures hidden in the heavens are so rich that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. Yes, come out to the house as often as you want, and you'll be fed each time. This class was going to be the first vi video podcast course on campus this semester, but they didn't get all the technology worked out in time. So it'll be uh, this time next year. Uh, that will make it asynchronous learning possible. You know, people can take the course online anywhere at any time. Other presentations, I do a Star of Bethlehem presentation, probably have done this 25 times in the last three years. And this is a, a recent, uh, well, this is where I was speaking to the local astronomy club, given the Star of Bethlehem presentation. So if you want to know what was the Star of Bethlehem, you can go and listen to an attorney's explanation. But hey, let me tell you something. Don't think it's uh, unworthy of your consideration. Astrophotography, another session I gave at the local astronomy club. Here's an interview I did on religion and astronomy for a national magazine. So anyway, you might find some of those interesting. You can download them on your iPod. All right, any questions about the class or the content and structure of it? You know, I might end this introductory uh, section by just saying this. Why am I here? Man, I got plenty to do. I got 12 books to write this year. What brings me here to teach this class? And I was thinking about that driving over here tonight. And let me just speak from my heart about my motivation. 
my objectives. And those are really twofold. One is because this is my passion. I just love astronomy. And to teach your passion, what a privilege. I consider it a privilege to be here. And But more than that, it's, you know, uh, Socrates said that his, his theory of education was, uh, was that education is not a matter of filling buckets, but lighting fires. And my hope is that my inspiration and passion is going to rub off on you uh, for a lifetime, and you're going to be, you're going to pursue this. What better avocation to have? Golf? Give me a break. Uh, this is something that is, it enriches you, and it draws you closer to the Creator. Here we go with uh, Chapter 1. Yes, a grand tour of the heavens. Fasten your seatbelts and let's go. You know, ever since the beginning of time, you know, people have, uh, have looked at the spectacle of the heavens with awesome wonders and uh, have tried to explain what they've seen. And for millennia, those efforts were rooted in what? Superstition and, and uh, conjecture. And it was not until the advent of modern astronomy that we could look at the heavens and, and have a better sense of, in fact, what was going on up there in terms of the structure and composition of the heavens. Uh, and I, I kind of date the, uh, the advent of modern astronomy back to the mid-16th century when a, a, a Polish monk by the name of Copernicus published on his deathbed, literally, the first copy was handed to him, uh, De Revolutionibus, the, the revolution of the heavenly bodies, uh, where he, he, he presents this theory that is so incredibly counterintuitive in what I consider one of the great achievements in the history of human endeavor. And he says, you know, it's not that the earth is fixed and everything in the universe is rotating around us, which is exactly the way, the way it looks. But it, no, it's not that way at all. The earth is actually rotating, and that's what makes everything look like it's rotating around us, and we're rotating around the sun. The only thing orbiting around us is the moon. What an incredible theory. It was utterly rejected. It was almost considered with amusement by the scientific establishment. Certainly the church rejected it as anti-biblical because of so many references in the Bible to the earth being fixed and immovable and the sun moving and everything else around us. We'll return to that Copernican revolution later. But uh, 50 years later, his theory was, for all intents and purposes, confirmed by Galileo, although even then it did not gain widespread acceptance for generations to come. Galileo, who was the first person that we know of to turn a crude, primitive, in his case, nine-power telescope to the heavens for the first time. What does he see? An infinitude of stars beyond the few thousand that the human eye can see. Sunspots on the sun craters on the moon, and ears on Saturn. Shows you how crude his telescope was. But it opened our eyes to a universe that we knew nothing about. And from that day on, as instruments have gotten better and better, our understanding of the universe has increased. The largest telescope in the world in 1900, just 100 years ago, was the Hooker Telescope at Mount Wilson. In so, just outside Los Angeles, a 100-inch diameter telescope. And there I am standing there by the Hooker Telescope. This was just a couple months ago when I was at Caltech. And it's, it's uh, just 
not too far from there. That's the telescope that so many of the groundbreaking discoveries in astronomy were made in the 20th century by Edwin Hubble sitting on this chair right here. We'll look at some of those awesome discoveries uh, throughout the course of this semester. You know, the Keck telescopes were built toward the end of the 20th century. And so here we have telescopes that have uh, over 16 times the light-gathering power of that 100-inch uh, Hooker telescope. These are 400-inch in diameter. That's 10-meter, or 33 feet in diameter. And there's two of them. Why are there two? Wasn't one good enough? It's uh, that the two are connected interferometrically. And we'll talk about that later. That if you have two optical telescopes, both looking at the same object, in a sense, this is true for radio waves, and we're experimenting with uh, visual and other forms of radiation, that the effective, res uh, effective diameter of the instrument, re receiving instrument, is the distance between the two devices. So uh, anyway, that, uh, that task is still underway on the top of uh, the dormant volcano Mauna Kea in the big island of Hawaii. Is it pronounced Hawaii or Hawaii? Anybody know? Well, you know, there was these two guys in Minnesota at a coffee shop, and the, and the one asked the other guy that, that question, is it Hawaii or Hawaii? Uh, he said, it's Hawaii. And the other guy said, well, thanks. I've always wanted to know. And the other guy said, you're welcome. <laughs> these, are, uh, <laughs> these are named after uh, Howard Keck, who was the benefactor who paid for much of the construction of the Keck 1, anyway, that went online in 1993. Keck 2 goes online 1996. Uh, he was an interesting guy, oil tycoon. He ran the biggest oil distribution company in America, sells it to Mobil, which becomes Exxon, for billions. Starts this foundation. It's giving away tons of money to uh, scientific and university uh, projects. You'll see his name in many contexts in academic institutions. Incidentally, he actually owned two of the Indianapolis 500 car race cars that won that race. And he loved to race thoroughbred horses. His prized horse, Ferdinand, wins the Kentucky Derby in 1986, as I recall. So it's one of the interesting personalities in the, in the chronicles of astronomy. But it's not the biggest telescope anymore. Here is SALT, the biggest telescope temporarily. S-A-L-T, South Africa, South African Large Telescope. It's about 11 meters, so it's a little bigger than the 10-meter uh, Keck telescope. This is a golden age for astronomy. And why do I say that? Well, because of these telescopes. And by the way, it's not just these land-based optical telescopes. It's the, the great, what NASA calls the four great observatories that it created over the last 10 to 15 years. These are all orbiting observatories. You've got the Hubble Space Telescope in visual light. You've got the Spitzer Infrared Radio Telescope. You've got the Compton, what was it? The Compton Gamma Ray Telescope. And you've got the Chandra X-Ray Telescope. Three of these are still operational. The Gamma Telescope, the uh, Compton Gamma Ray Telescope was decommissioned several years ago. So these four great observatories have harnessed an incredible amount of information about the universe. And let me just back up and comment about this first bullet of why this is such a golden age for astronomy. It's not just the creation of these marvelous telescopes. 
but it's also the fact that we've come to know, just in the last 100, 150 years, the nature of light. We did not really have a clear understanding of light up until James Clerk Maxwell, who, in my opinion, was the greatest scientist since uh, Newton, uh, Scottish physicist. He came up with four simple, elegant equations that you could, you could place on a T-shirt, in fact, they have been, that define and describe light. He showed us, and we'll talk about that, by the way, in Chapter 2, that story. He showed us that visible light, what our human eyes can see on this screen, for example, the grass outside, your car, etc., visual light that our eyes can detect is only a tiny, tiny fraction, about one quintillionth. That's a decimal followed by 16 zeros and then a one. Uh, it's that, that's how much we see on the entire electromagnetic spectrum. And Maxwell was the first one to come to some hazy understanding of this, that there's all kinds of radiation raining down on us that we can't see because our eyes only see visible radiation. In fact, if you would take a piece of paper and if you would look at the width of that, that is about 100 times thicker than the wavelengths of visible light that our eye can see. So just think about that. Your eye can only see in an electromagnetic spectrum that spans 20 million miles. That's the longest wavelength of radiation, long-range radi radio waves, 20 million miles from wavelength to, from crest to crest. Our human eyes can see 100th the width of this piece of paper. We see nothing. That's why we have an X-ray observatory in space, why we had a gamma-ray observatory, why we have an infrared observatory up there to see what the human eye cannot see. All of this incredible amount of information pouring out of these objects that is now visible to us. That's an amazing story of the, uh, the nature of light. We'll return to that in the next chapter. We now understand the life cycle of stars. This has only been in the last 50 to 75 years. You know, if you would take your hands like this and push hard, just try that. Why do they stay right in, in the middle, in front of you? Because your left and right hand are offsetting each other in terms of pressure, aren't they? The pressure from your left is offsetting, is being offset by the pressure from the right. And there's equilibrium there. That's exactly what's going on in stars. Do you know that 92% of the universe is hydrogen gas, the most elemental molecule, one proton, one electron. How do we know that? We'll look at the answer to that in chapter two. It's an amazing story. How do we know the composition of galaxies 10 billion light years away? We do know exactly what they're made of. And we also know this, there's no exotic elements out there that we don't know about, yes. So if a UFO lands here on campus tonight and leaves a hubcap, it's not going to be some exotic element that we've never heard of before. We know the universe is isotropic. It is the same everywhere. How do we know that? The answer to that we will address in the next chapter. Now, the life cycle of stars. So these, these giant uh, clouds of hydrogen gas begin to coalesce, and they begin to contract due to gravity and form spheres. And those spheres, giant spheres of hydrogen gas begin to contract. Gravity, 
the weakest force in the universe, begins to contract that cloud down. And what happens when gas is compressed? It heats up. And as it heats up and hits the trigger point for nuclear fusion, about 15 million degrees Fahrenheit, fusion reactions start happening. And those fusion reactions are just enough to offset the inward crushing force of gravity. And you have what's called hydrostatic equilibrium. The outward flow of energy from those fusion reactions is exactly offsetting the inward crushing force of gravity, and that star goes on what's called the main sequence, the stable burning phase of that star. For billions of years, it'll be on that phase. Our star, the sun, is on the main sequence. We've got another five billion years uh, before the next major problem happens. In fact, things will start happening before then, but uh, the major problems are going to be in about five billion. Somebody said, oh, really? Is it five billion? Oh, good. I thought it was only five million. Uh, that's okay. Five million years is still nothing for us to worry about, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, but what happens is eventually that nuclear fuel, we understand this now, the nuclear fuel gets burned. Do you know that our sun, think about this, is consuming through fusion 600 million tons of hydrogen every second. How long can it keep that rate up? 600 million tons a second of hydrogen are being converted into helium. The resulting mass deficit after that transformation takes place is about 4 million tons of matter is unaccounted for. That's the matter that's converted into, into energy. And uh, it's that 4 million tons per second that produces the heat and light and energy and radiation uh, from the sun. 4 million, just 4 million out of 600 million. It's about four-tenths of a percent, something like that. Tiny fraction. We'll talk about that in a future chapter. It's an amazing story. So anyway, the star, eventually, it can't keep this up. It's running out of fuel. But that inexorable crushing force of gravity never stops and crushes that star down. And the weakest, you know, gravity is the weakest of the four fundamental forces of nature. The weakest force of nature becomes the dominant force and the ever-present force in the life of a star. And, this, and, and we see evidence throughout the universe of stars at every point along the life cycle that gravity defines. Yes, did you know that gravity is 10 to the 37th power weaker than electromagnetism? Another one of the, the four fundamental forces. 10 to the 37th power. You ask, uh, so what? Well, let me just tell you this. Your mother, you may not realize this, she proved this to be true countless times when you were a child growing up in an experiment in your kitchen. And you may not have recognized what she was doing, but she did. Do you remember all those papers you'd bring home from school? They're all crumpled up. But it was a spelling test, 100%. And what did mom do with that? She got that cheap little magnet, and she put it on the refrigerator door, right? Maybe you never had that happen. Maybe it was a, <laughs> maybe it was a B. Okay, we'll say it was a B, all right? Uh, <laughs> or a D, good, I passed, mom. Uh, but uh, didn't your mom ever do that? Anybody? Yes. Now, what was she showing you? Think about this. That little inexpensive magnet 
I can hardly say it. It's so exciting. That little inexpensive magnet was doing nothing less than overpowering the entire gravitational pull of planet Earth. Yes. Why? From the electromagnetic force stuck to your refrigerator. That was overcoming the pull of a hundred billion trillion tons of Earth mass and its associated gravity. What does that tell us? Gravity is a weak, an incredibly weak force. <sighs> okay. Oh, another reason this is the golden age. Think about this. A hundred years ago, your great-grandparents didn't have any idea about any of this stuff. Maybe they still don't. But, uh, but the fact is, everything we're talking about is a function of the last 100 to 150 years. What a revolution. Dark matter and dark energy, this is just in the last 20 years class and less. We now know because of looking at rotation curves on galaxies. And we'll talk about this in a later chapter. It's an amazing story. We now know that the matter that we see in the universe accounts for only about 20% of all the matter that's there. Where's the other 80%? It is what's called dark matter. It's there. We can tell it's there because of its gravitational consequences or effects, but we can't see it. What is it? It's one of the great mysteries of astronomy and all of physics or science today. What is an explanation for the dark matter? Why is it that the, the universe is permeated with matter that we can't see? We'll, we'll come back to that issue a number of times this semester and look at some of the potential explanations. And then, just 10 years ago, another utterly startling discovery that the universe is expanding. We know that because of Edwin Hubble at Mount Wilson using the Hooker Telescope back in the 1920s and 30s. What an amazing story that is. We'll talk about that. How he, Edwin Hubble, the greatest astronomer, some would say, of the 20th century, teams up with a third-grade dropout mule train driver, and they write the greatest article in the history of astronomy together. And they prove that the universe is expanding. What an amazing story. We'll return to those two characters later. The universe is expanding. But what's been discovered in the last 10 years, not only is the universe expanding, but the rate of expansion is accelerating. Everything's flying away from each other at an ever-increasing rate of speed. It's the force of anti-gravity. Something in the universe is forcing everything to fly away from everything else. Not in a linear ratio, but in an accelerating frame of reference. What is that mysterious force of dark energy? What is it that's causing this to happen? In time, lights will go out. Galaxies will not be seen. It's already happening. And uh, why that is, we don't know. But... Uh, it's one of the great mysteries, but it's something that's just been discovered. And we also know this. The universe is not going to slow down and be contracted again because of gravitational attraction. It's not there. There's not enough gravity. There's not enough mass to cause a slowdown and a oscillating 
you, do you know that science can disprove false religions? Yes. Back in the 70s, astronomers were rhapsodic because they thought the answer to the expanding universe problem is that the universe eventually will contract again because there's enough mass for it, the expansion to slow down. And then it'll come back to a, 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 a geometric point and explode again, and it will just be an oscillating universe forever. And that explains how the universe could always have been here without being created. And that was basically kind of an Eastern, uh, almost Hindu conception. And, uh, you know, so, so many astronomers were so excited. Oh, yes, Christianity is wrong after all, and we've proven it now. And Hinduism is the enlightened path. And now we know that that's not true. Science has proven in the last 10 years that the universe is never going to contract. It's flying away from each other at an ever accelerating rate, and it's never going to change. The oscillating, that samsara concept in Hinduism is false. The fundamental thesis of Hinduism, and thereby the religion itself, has been proven false by science, just like Mormonism has been proven false by science in the last 10 years with the DNA evidence. Absolutely devastating on Mormonism. It proves that it's false uh, because the central thesis of the Book of Mormon, of course, is the American Indians are the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. And yet studies have been done now for virtually every American, Native American tribe from Alaska down to the tip of South America, hundreds if not thousands of them. And there's absolutely no linkage between any of those people and a Semitic race of Israelites. So uh, it's absolute proof that Mormonism is, is false. The, uh, that what Smith himself called the most significant prophecy of Mormonism has been proven to be a lie. Science has proven Mormonism to be false. And so it's kind of exciting. Science is our friend. Because what? It helps us to understand truth. But let me say this. Science is not infallible either, nor is theology. Scripture and nature are infallible. Science and theology are human interpretations. They can be flawed. That is a fundamental distinction to remember. Okay. Ah, the special and general theories of relativity. 1905, an obscure patent examiner in a Swiss patent office publishes a paper. In fact, he published four papers that year, any one of which deserved the Nobel Prize. One of these papers was on the special theory of relativity. He comes, uh, Albert Einstein, 10 years later, he publishes another paper, The General Theory of Relativity. We'll come back to both of these theories many times this semester because you can intuitively understand them without a knowledge of mathematics. This is a non-mathematical course. I, I think it's safe to say there's no math in this course. Uh, you don't need to learn it. Let me set your mind at ease. Um, but, you know... The, con the concepts are what I want you to understand, and you can understand the concepts here very easily, I think. And the basic, some of the basic ideas we'll be talking about from these two theories. Light is a limitation on speed in the universe, with, a couple, with two or three exceptions that we'll talk about, where things theoretically can go faster than the speed of light. One of them's happening right now. In fact, one of them happens every morning uh, as I brush my teeth, and we'll talk about that. And then he also taught us how 
time slows down as a function of velocity and gravity. Yes, the closer you are to an intense gravitational source, the slower time travels for you. That's why I mentioned last year, and I'll mention it in this class again later when we talk about this, it has been proven at the science building at Harvard Observatory 100 years ago, atomic clocks on the third floor and in the basement. The clock in the basement moved slower than the one on the third floor. Gravitational time dilation. It's closer to the center of the Earth. The you know, it's closer to the gravitational source. And one of our auditors last year, who was 91 years old, he came up to me after class and says, I'm moving to the basement floor. Uh, <laughs> So there was a guy that had a practical application for her. <laughs> but, but for you guys, get off that third or fourth floor. Request to be on floor one. That's where Holly is, at my request. And uh, velocity. Why is she on the first floor? You know, she understands this stuff intuitively. I've been training her since she was a child. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it also tells us that our, our time is a function of velocity. That's kind of bizarre. But the faster you are moving, the slower time travels, apparently, to a stationary frame of reference. So when you're driving down Glenstone at 40 miles an hour, and I'm standing here on campus watching you, do you know that, you are that time is traveling more slowly for you than it is for me? Yes. And uh, when you start going at very fast velocities, this effect really begins to be noticeable. And we'll take a look at that uh, relationship in a later chapter. But this is all what's happened this century, in the last 100, 150 years. The Big Bang, just in, since about the 1930s, there's been many lines of evidence that have coalesced around the theory that the universe began in a gigantic explosion. And the vast majority of professional astronomers would accept that as being uh, an explanation of the of the formation of the universe. Uh, and we'll look at the evidence for that in future chapters, but, but the point is this. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that what else more eloquently embodies the very first verse of Scripture? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why do we study astronomy? Well, because... Among other things, the Bible asserts that we can learn about God by studying the universe. What does the Bible tell us that we can expect to learn this semester? Let me, let me mention a couple of things. First of all, Psalms 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So what do we expect to learn this semester? Something about the glory of God. Yes. What's, what, what is it that keeps me out in the driveway at 2 o'clock in the morning? when I have a meeting at 8 o'clock th that morning. The glory of God. What about Romans 1.18? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Here's a couple more things we can expect to learn from astronomy and from nature itself. God's eternal power. Oh, yes, absolutely. And... His divine nature. Absolutely. Yes. We'll come back to this over and over again. That's one of the reasons we study astronomy. What a privilege to study astronomy here of all places. Can you imagine taking an astronomy course at a secular university? 
where you're given a flawed understanding, a deficient understanding, a false understanding of astronomy, because they leave out the fundamental truths of God's creation and how he maintains it, uh, which they cannot bring themselves to accept, although there are an increasing number of Christians that are becoming professional astronomers and, and uh, faculty members. Hey, look, listen to this. Why study astronomy? Because we explore some of the most fundamental questions of life in this course. Like what? Well, let's take a look at some of them. When did the universe begin? How did it begin? Is there evidence of a divine creation? Where is the center of the universe? How will the universe end? Well, what was you heard T.S. Eliot's uh, famous poem, The Hollow Men? What is that last line? This, then, is how the world will end. This, then, is how the world will end. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. How big is the universe? Current estimates are 60 to 100 billion years in diameter. How many stars and galaxies are there in the universe? Who knows? But the Bible says God knows them all by name. Uh, how do we measure the distance of objects? Boy, there's a good one. How do we know how far these things are? That's an amazing story in and of itself that is still ongoing. And we'll come back to that in, in a later chapter. Is the universe finite or infinite? Is there a point at which it ends and we can't go past that? It's like a wall at the end of the year. And if so, what's on the other side of that wall? You ever thought about that? Of course you have. Is the universe finite or infinite? If it's finite, where does it end? Is it expanding? Will it ever contract? Well, we've already answered some of these questions. Will it oscillate forever? Are there other planets beyond our solar system? Well, we know the answer is yes, but is there life on those planets? Is there life anywhere in the universe? Do UFOs exist? That's the one you're waiting for, I can tell. Uh, what's the bottom line? Do UFOs exist? <laughs> and I'm happy if I know that. We'll come back to that in the last chapter. Anybody been to Venice? Have you been to uh, the Basilica of St. Mark? Have you been in to see the golden ceiling? It's one of the most amazing features in all of church architecture. Uh, if you go in this facility, you see this surreal golden ceiling. About the only people that see it anymore are visitors. It's called St. Mark because it allegedly has a fragment of St. Mark's bones uh, buried in that basilica that dates back to about 1000. Uh, I think it was 10, what, 1068 AD when construction started. And it's hard to get a good picture of it, but that's kind of what it looks like. It doesn't do it justice. John Barrow is a British cosmologist, and he won the Templeton Prize uh, for advancing understanding of science and religion in 2006. And in his acceptance speech, he talked about a recent visit to this uh, basilica. And he said he was just struck by the fact that those craftsmen who worked on that ceiling for 400 years to build this mosaic that's 11,000 square feet large, using a process of combining glass and gold that is still not understood. And for generations, a family would have these 
artisans working by candlelight, propped up on rafters on the ceiling, working on a little section of the whole, never having the slightest idea what the whole work was going to look like. And he made the comparison that that's a perfect metaphor for the history of astronomy and really science in general, that people for so many years, in fact, the psalmist David, talking about the heavens declared the glory of God, what had he seen? Up until recent years, people have labored in candlelight, haven't they? Looking at their small square feet that they're working on, never having any idea what the whole is going to look like. And yet, that is our privilege today when we walk into St. Mark's and we can see what none of those craftsmen ever saw. And similarly today, because of these uh, advancements and developments that we've just uh, chronicled, we now can apprehend the universe in a totality that was totally unknown to some of the great figures in the history of science. And so we live in a privileged time to be, discover to be uh, considering and studying astronomy. Now let's talk about uh, size and distance. A couple of other introductory thoughts here. Um, and when we talk about the size of the universe and the distances involved in space, I'm reminded of, uh, we have any English majors in here? Any English majors? Dante's Divine Comedy. And have you read that? You know a little bit about it. Uh, 14th century, he was writing this in about the year 1300 or so. It talks about Dante and Virgil traveling from hell up to the terraces of purgatory and then on to the spheres of heaven and ultimately up to the throne of God itself. Now, this picture here, uh, I think it's a gust of Dore print, depicts Dante and Virgil as they're just leaving the highest terrace of purgatory, and they're beginning to ascend the spheres of heaven. And it's interesting, as you read the Paradiso, uh, the, uh, Dante's language becomes more transcendent and ethereal and reverent. Everything becomes brighter and more beautiful the higher they climb. And eventually, at the, toward the end of that book, and it's a very short book, I'd recommend you read it, he stands face to face with God. And if I may quote from the medieval Italian in the original, it goes, if I can remember, al alta fantasia chi manco posa, which uh, is loosely translated, at this high place, experience exceeded my ability to describe. Now think about that. At this high place, looking in the face of God, experience exceeded my capacity to describe. Have you ever had that happen where your ability to describe was superseded by the experience itself. Yes. I think of our son when he was three years old, when I took him to a parade and a fire truck went by, and he just froze when he looked at that thing. The experience exceeded his capacity to describe. You've had that happen. Maybe when you propose to your fiance. That happened to me, boy, I'll tell you that's for sure. When uh, when I was, when my wife and I were sharing vows at our marriage, it was kind of a surreal experience for me. I mean, it, the experience exceeded my capacity to describe. That was reinforced, by the way, in the reception sometime later that evening when my wife's uncle told us 
this church where we were married, the big th- uh, cathedral my wife had been raised in, my wife's uncle said that he was walking up the stairs of the church a little bit late, and when he got up to the top of the main entrance, there was a flagstone going all the way down to the altar area. The two big wooden doors were open because it was a very warm day, and they had limited air conditioning. It had been rainy and cloudy, but he said, as I got to the top step and I could look down the altar, the, the aisle down to the altar, you were exchanging vows, and just at that moment, just before I walked through the threshold of that church, the clouds broke, the sun came out, and bathed that whole church in sunlight. And he said, I looked up, and there was this magnificent rainbow arcing over that church. We've always taken that as a sign. Aren't uh, rainbows supposed to be signs? As a sign of what? Divine blessing. On our 20th anniversary, we were at the Tower Club here, 21st floor, having dinner. And it was a day just like we were married cloudy, drizzly, and we were sitting up there. It was 8.15. Hardly anybody was up there. And my wife said, you know, now's the exact moment when we were exchanging vows 20 years ago. We both looked out the window up there, and at that moment, the clouds parted. The sun bathed that part of town, and a double rainbow appeared over that restaurant. We've taken that as a confirmation. We did the right thing. So when you get married... Look skyward. And uh, <laughs> have somebody post it out in the churchyard, okay, with binoculars. You know, uh, let, me <laughs> let me tell you something. There will be a rainbow somewhere. You can, you can rationalize it by saying that. But uh, it's kind of awesome when <laughs> it's kind of awesome when this happens right over the church where you, when you're getting married. Al Alta Fantasia Ki Manco Posa. General revelation. Beyond the faintest stars the eye can see, you will behold through the telescope a host of other stars which escape the unassisted sight, so numerous as to be beyond belief. Who said that? Galileo, reporting on his first observations with a telescope. Don't you love that quote? Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. These two verses that we've just looked at in Romans 1.18. These are examples of general revelation, that God shows us enough about himself, his existence and his nature, that we are without excuse. And then you look at this. This is about a five-minute picture I snapped a few years ago of what's called the Veil Nebula. Look at the stars there. Unbelievable. And that's just a tiny little section of the sky. And what do you think about when you see that? And that's just in our galaxy. These stars are all neighbors to us in our little corner of our galaxy. Stars that you see, by the way, class, are close stars. We don't see faraway stars with the unassisted sight. Do you know we only can see about 5,000 stars, less than that probably, with the human eye, unassisted. Some say it's as low as 3,000. From the parking lot out here, it's about 10. Listen to this, Genesis 15, the first six verses. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your great reward. But Abram said, O Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. One of the high points of the Old Testament. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. What do we see here? The first expression in Scripture, the first linkage of faith with righteousness, a principle that would resonate through the pages of Scripture and find its full expression in the Christian faith. And we see the Apostle Paul refer to this very passage in Galatians 3. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And the key thing to me is how this very passage is linked to what? Stars. Count the stars, Abram. So shall your descendants be. Abram believed that his descendants would be like the number of stars in the heaven. And that was counted to him as righteousness. Well, let's take a look at this. What are some of the sizes of astronomical objects? Going from the smaller ones to the larger ones. You know, at the small end of the spectrum, you got meteors. These are measured in most of them in inches or less. Asteroids, maybe hundreds of feet. There's a lot of variation here. Comets, several miles. Satellites, up to 3,300 miles or so. I think that's the biggest one, Ganymede. Uh, it's a satellite of Jupiter. Planets, up to 90,000 miles, actually bigger than that, uh, some of them. Uh, stars, up to millions of miles in diameter. Star clusters, tens to hundreds of light years in diameter. Nebulae, we'll talk about all of these in future chapters tens of light years, galaxies, several thousand light years, and the biggest objects, galaxy clusters, which can be up to millions of light years. So just to give you kind of a scale perspective. Now, let's take a basketball, and we put it right here on this table and assume that that is the sun. Well, we'll pretend that that is the sun. The Earth is an apple seed about 100 feet away, not an inch away, but about 100 feet feet away. Okay, think about that. A basketball with an apple seed 100 feet away orbiting around it. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? By, because of what? Gravity. Jupiter is a grape 500 feet away. Think about that. Here's our basketball and a grape out here 500 feet away orbiting around it, as tall as a 50-story building. Pluto, a grain of sand almost a mile away. That's really bizarre, isn't it? A grain of sand rotating around the basketball from almost a mile away. That's our solar system. Alpha Centauri, the closest star system to our sun. By the way, if somebody asks you, what's the closest star? What's the answer to that? It's the sun. 5,700 miles. In other words, the closest basketball to our basketball is in Moscow, Russia. Is that amazing or what? The universe is basically basketballs separated by thousands of miles. The universe is called space for a reason. It is space. In fact, this table is space. It's essentially atoms that are like basketballs separated by thousands of miles. Why is it that my hand stopped here? 
And if I hit this table a trillion times, would it always stop? Would not on one occasion it go through the table? That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. We'll return to that in a later chapter. The answer is all of existence is a function of probability. Because given enough time, yes, the atoms will coalesce in such a way as that your hand will go through the table. It's probable that that won't happen, but it's not certain. I knew a physicist once that proposed to his wife this way. Beloved, I choose to marry you, even though I am not certain of your existence. But I believe the probability is sufficiently high that I'm willing to take the risk. <laughs> well, it's not romantic. But it's really awesome, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It is bizarre that everything is a matter of probability. And we'll look at why that is in a later chapter. It's just, it's just fascinating. Uh, the diameter of the Milky Way, 100 million miles. The Andromeda Galaxy, the, which is the nearest large galaxy to our own, about 400 billion miles uh, wide. What are light years? Astronomers measuring stick. It's simply the distance light travels in one Earth year. By the way, the concept of a light year is meaningless in other parts of the galaxy based on an Earth year. Okay, I mean, they may have their own light years, but it's not going to be based on the Earth traveling around the sun one lap. And uh, it turns out it's about 6 trillion miles. That's 6 followed by 12 zeros. That's how far a beam of light travels in a vacuum in one Earth year at about 186,000 miles per second. Special theory of relativity says that is essentially nature's speed limit with a couple of exceptions. One light year is about 800 solar system diameters. If you take Pluto as part of the solar system, which is, in a sense it is, it's uh, what's called a dwarf planet. If you take a look at Pluto's orbit, the diameter of the orbit, not the radius, and multiply that times 800, 800 end to end, that would uh, comprise one light year. Pluto's only about 5.4 light hours away from the sun, as I recall. The moon is 1.5 light seconds at 186,000 miles per second light. Radio waves take about 1.5 seconds to get to the moon. Eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth. Pluto is five and a half light hours. So uh, if you're at Pluto and you want to call mom, say, hi, mom, how are you? How soon would it be minimum that you get a response? Eleven hours. Five and a half hours to get there, five and a half hours to return. We saw that with the moon landings back in the, in the 70s and 60s. These guys would be talking on to Houston Control. They'd say, well, good morning, fellas. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. You know, these three-second delays because it's 1.5 light seconds away. People thought these guys were just weird. Now, here's a picture I took of Pluto. People have asked me, well, how do you know that's Pluto and that's Starfield? Well, that's a good question. But uh, through painstaking, meticulous examination of star charts, it's easy to, easy to do. <laughs> now, here's a Boeing 747 traveling at about 575 miles per hour, 14,000 miles a day, 5 million miles per year, nonstop, we'll say. One light year, it would take 1.2 million years to get there, traveling nonstop. The fastest spaceship made by man the Voyager 1, which we'll talk about in, a f in future chapters, 
traveling at 15 miles per second, 54,000 miles per hour, 1.3 million miles per day, 500 million miles per year, travels one light year in 12,000 years. There it is right now. It's emitting signals still at 12 billion miles away. It is three times the orbit of Pluto right now, still traveling away from us through the heliosphere. Its signal is so weak, 20 watts. Look at a 20-watt bulb in your room. You can hardly see it. From 12 billion miles away, only the largest radio telescopes on Earth under the ideal conditions can hear it. This is a recording I took just a couple months ago of it. So you're hearing literally nothing less than the farthest object man has created signaling to us in that little warble. It's cold out here. Help. <laughs> what? Can you send us up some hot coffee? Uh, okay. Anyway, here it is. The Alpha Centauri system. It's actually a triple star. The closest star is Proxima Centauri. And there it is. It's about 4.2 light years away. It's a southern hemisphere object. We can't see it here from Springfield. Now, how long would it take us to get there? Well, with our Boeing 747 traveling nonstop, five million years, one way. But think of the frequent flyer miles you'd get. Awesome. Uh, now, Voyager 1, the fastest spaceship we've ever built, how long would that take to get to the nearest star? 50,000 years, one way. Is that incredible? Traveling at 500 million miles a year? The bottom line is, if you blast it off the day that Moses received the Ten Commandments, you'd have just barely begun your journey. That's 3,500 years ago out of 50,000. You're not even 10% of the way there. You know, I think about that a lot when I travel. I used to do a lot. I don't, I'm trying to cut back. Not too many years ago, I did, spoke at 42 conferences in one year. I just said, that's it. So I do a lot of teleconferences now. People don't like them. We want you here. I said, sure, you want me there. You going to go to the airport with me and sit there when my flight is canceled and have to try to find a hotel with 100,000 other people, which has happened countless times. And, uh, you know, you can still ask me questions. Just, you know, we've, there's the technology now to do it. They can uh, use a cell phone or just email questions to me, and they just hand me questions. You see on the video a hand reaching over with papers, and here I am with all these people watching me, and I'm, you, know, you never know what these questions are, where they're coming from. But it's, uh, it's kind of uh, it's worked out very well. People have been very pleased with it. So I don't travel quite as much, but I've looked out the plane many times at a scene like this, and uh, the thing that amazes me is I will hold a piece of paper up and try to detect any curvature in the Earth's horizon from seven miles up. You know what? I can't. And I just look out that window. People think, what is that guy doing? And I think, uh, they said, why don't you just pull the shade down? I said, I'm doing a scientific experiment. Excuse me. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, don't be like my physics professors. They robbed me of a Nobel Prize. What are you talking about? So, uh, 
I look out here. Look at there. You see any, do you see the Earth's curvature? We can't. And we're looking at hundreds of miles of horizon. What does that teach us? The Earth is immense. The immensity of the Earth. And yet, the Earth is what? It's a speck. In a speck, in a speck, in a speck, and on and on it goes. How utterly insignificant it would appear. And yet Psalms 8 says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And yet that leads us directly to John 3.16, that God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That verse, along with many others, gives significance to what seems utterly insignificant. God incarnate visited us. But anyway, here we go. What do we see here? A light pollution map of the United States. This is why you don't want to buy a telescope east of the Mississippi. <laughs> or in Southern California, basically the whole California seacoast. Uh, or look at Florida. I mean, every place. World light pollution maps. Some of the biggest telescopes in the world now are, be, are going in uh, Cerro Paranal in Chile. And uh, Canary Islands, big telescope is going in there. And on Mauna Kea, Hawaii, which I don't think we can actually see in either one of these charts. China's pretty good. Australia. I just had a, a, a nine-year-old girl in my Sunday school class for the last three weeks from Australia. So uh, I asked her, did you hear about that aviator in World War II that uh, ditched you know, about 50 miles off the coast of Australia, and he was unconscious when they picked him out of the water and they took him to a hospital. Uh, and he comes to a couple days later, and he's in this hospital room, you know, the green walls, the surgical light above his head, and a nurse comes in, and he said, have I come here to die? And she said, no, Mike, you came here yesterday. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about, uh, she didn't get it, by the way. I said, what kind of animals do you have in Australia? Oh, kangaroos. Yes. They also have 10 highly venomous snakes. And uh, I've been asked to speak in Australia and New Zealand on uh, risk management issues for the Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. And uh, they've told me that the biggest concerns among parents in Australia uh, in terms of church risk management is snake bites in the outback when they take the kids camping and they wake up in the morning and they feel something cold against their leg and it's a brown snake. One bite and you're dead before you take another breath. <laughs> Let's go camping, Mommy. Yeah, right. Go camping in the bedroom. So the, the perception of risk varies from culture to culture, I've learned. Uh, let's talk about constellations. 88 kind of patterns of stars in the, uh, in the sky. They, they differ from the northern versus southern hemisphere. And we'll talk about the clockwork universe in a future chapter. And, you know, this is very, it's actually quite comp complex. How can we explain the movement of the heavens through these constellations? 
And these constellations change position as we orbit the sun and see different parts of the night sky. And here's a good description of how this happens. So here's the sun in the middle, and here's the Earth taking a year to go around the sun, rotating every 24 hours about its axis. But look at each season of the year. Let's say we're here now in December. Straight overhead at night is the constellation Orion, okay, at midnight. But as the Earth continues to move into the spring and March at night, we're looking up at Virgo. We'll see Virgo when you come to my house because that contains what's called the realm of the galaxies. And everywhere you look there, you're going to see galaxies. It's an amazing part of the sky to observe. But then as the Earth moves around its orbit around the sun here into the summer at night, at midnight, you're looking up here at Ophiuchus, okay? And then coming back down to September, Pisces. So the point is, the constellations that we can actually see change during the course of the year because of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Copernicus figured that out. There's no physical correlation between member stars in a constellation. Like the Big Dipper, which is not a constellation, by the way, it's an asterism. It's in the constellation Ursa Major, the large bear. Those stars are not physically related. They're just line of sight coincidences, okay? Here's an artist depiction. You used to see uh, star charts like this back in the Middle Ages. The fact is that constellations were given their names, were given different names by different cultures. And in terms of Western European uh, designations, they were based sometimes on heroic figures, sometimes on mythological figures. Rarely were they based on what the object looked like, what the stars seemed to look like in the sky. Now, here's a perfect example. Here's the constellation. Here's the Earth down here at the bottom. And here's Cassiopeia constellation. And we see here the uh, five major stars in that constellation are these distances in light years. One of them is 54 light years. One of them is 613 light years. So, again, these are line of sight coincidences. These are not, this is not a physical, uh, physically related grouping of stars. And the same is true for all constellations. So when you see a constellation in the sky, uh, just remember that. This is a pure line of sight coincidence. Those stars have no physical or minimal physical connection with each other. Here's a planetarium software package that I use called the sky. Looking at the Big Dipper, you see it there? On this particular slide, I've, I've shown the distances in light years for the major uh, seven stars in the Big Dipper asterism. And as you can see here, some of them, the furthest one is Dubby here at 123 light years, and some of them are around 80 light years or less. Here's Lyra, the lyre or the harp. It's a summertime constellation. But look at these. Uh, Vega, the brightest star in the summer sky, other than the sun, is uh, 25 light years. And some of these are up to 800, almost 900 light years. So again, these are very far from each other. They're just line of sight coincidences. Now, look at the sky here. How can you, how can you pick out constellations? Well, it's almost impossible. And yet, here they are. So this is a very kind of almost arbitrary practice, isn't it, to pick these out? And ancient cultures came to different conclusions as to what the constellations were. These are the 88, most of them that we can see in this image, 
officially designated constellations. And the constellations that are along the ecliptic, that yellow line, which is the apparent motion of the sun across the sky, that's called the ecliptic. And there are 13 constellations along that ecliptic that are known as the zodiac. And here they are. Pisces, the fish. These all have mythological connotations, by the way. Aries, the ram. Taurus, bull. Gemini, the twins. Cancer, the crab. Leo, lion. Virgo, the virgin. Libra, the balance scales. Scorpius, scorpion. Ophiuchus, the serpent holder. Sagittarius, the archer. Aquarius, the water carrier. And Capricornus, I think it was Pan, who was wanting to change into a fish, and he didn't quite make it, and so he was left as a Capricorn, a half-goat, half-fish creature. There have been books that have been written that try to explain that the, the constellations of the Zodiac prove the gospel. And the first one was Joseph Zeiss, who was a Lutheran pastor in the 1880s, wrote the gospel in the stars. That book was just, it's unbelievable. In fact, somebody at my church wanted me to review it. And I've, I've heard enough about it that I didn't even want to touch the thing. And I said, well, finally, he just kept after me. I said, okay, I'll read it. But bring it in a sack next week that's opaque. I don't want to be seen walking around with this thing. So, you know, okay. So I actually did read it as much as I could stomach. I'll talk about that, come back to that in a minute. And then this Bullinger wrote The Witness of the Stars, which basically reaches the same conclusion, taking the 12 to 13 constellations of the Zodiac and proving through them the gospel. These books were, had met an ignominious fate, were totally forgotten, basically, until Dr. D. James Kennedy resurrected them in recent years and promoted them widely. In fact, he wrote a book of his own proving the gospel is depicted in the constellations. But again, let's be serious about this. Look at this, the night sky here. And here's these constellations. I mean, who in his right mind, looking at those stars, would pick out those associations? How can we link these with the gospel? In what sense do the two fish represent Christianity or prove Christianity? In what sense does uh, do the twins or does a crab? Uh, you know, so you might pick out the lion, well, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. The Virgo is Mary. But it's kind of hard to pick out some association with these other constellations, isn't it? Well, that didn't deter Zeiss in the original book. Let me share some of his findings. How does the constellation Capricorn, that was the half fish, half goat, prove Christianity? Well, it's obvious. You've missed it, class. Here's the answer. It proved John 12:24. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. You understand now? Okay. <laughs> or how about this? How does the constellation Cancer the Crab prove Christianity? Well, you may have missed this. It's proof of the church. Is not a crab born in water? Well, so are Christians who are born into the church through baptism. And look at those things on the sides of the crab, the legs. This multitudinous development and numerous members perfectly describes the church. After all, the church has many members, too. Can you imagine saying to an atheist, Sir, let me prove to you the truth of Christianity. All you have to do is look at the constellation Cancer. There you have fully presented the birth of the Christian church, like a crab born in water with many legs. How is it possible for you not to believe? <laughs> it's an argument class I would suggest you not make. And by the way, there are 88 constellations. 
Why does Zeiss single out only 12 of them along the Zodiac, 12 or 13? Why would God have limited the story of salvation to only those 12 or 13 constellations? It's a good question. The constellations of the Zodiac have meant different things to different cultures. How can you say to a Buddhist that the constellation Virgo proves the virgin birth when the same constellation signifies a cow to a Buddhist? The constellations themselves are constantly changing due to the relative motion of the stars that they contain. It's nothing less, in my opinion, than biblical astrology. Zodiacal constellations are not visible, by the way. Did you know this? Above 66 north latitude, 66 degrees north latitude. So what does that mean? There's no gospel in the stars for Eskimos and Swedes. <laughs> my ancestral homeland, not Eskimos, but Swedes. Well, there may have been Eskimos, I don't know. But my ancestors, were God deprived them of the gospel in the stars. I resent that. Now you can see I have, I'm kind of biased here in my opinion. And it violates, I think this is seriously the most significant uh, problem, it violates the fundamental tenet of the Protestant Reformation, sola, sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is the sole source of knowledge pertaining to salvation. And the Westminster Confession of 1646 uh, and its differentiation between general and special revelation, which I believe does correctly describe this uh, distinction. And here's a direct quotation. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation? And the answer is no. In other words, general revelation tells us of the existence of God, but special revelation only comes through the person of Jesus Christ and through Scripture itself. We can't get special revelation from looking at constellations. And so Zeiss violates that principle, in my opinion. And here's D. James Kennedy's book, The Real Meaning of the Zodiac. Don't waste your money. Astrology, what is it? It's, of course, uh, pseudoscience attributing significance to objects in mostly planets in the solar system, or in, and when you were born, uh, what, what day of the year trying to predict future events thereby. What does the Bible have to say about astrology? Well, it was a capital offense in the Old Testament. And here's a couple of verses, Isaiah 47, verses 13 to 14, and Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 13, that indicate God did not treat this lightly. Because what is astrology? It's nothing less than looking to pseudoscience for answers uh, for the future rather than divine guidance. Is there any basis for it? No. Do you know astrology has been tested? Chapter 1 of our book talks about a number of tests, one with 1,600 graduate students, where they took the birthday of each one, they did personality tests, and they couldn't find any differentiation from people based on what day or month or sign they were born under. So it has been scientifically proven to be uh, completely false. Many people do confuse astrology and astronomer. I've spoken many, many times in churches on astronomy. Star of Bethlehem, etc. Half the time I'm introduced as an astrologer. And uh, <laughs> I get up and my immediate comment is usually, I don't tell fortunes. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about star names. Stars are given different names. A star can have many different names depending on which catalog you're looking at. 
okay? Stars don't just have one name. Now, the first thing we look at are what are called the common star names. And there may be a few hundred, maybe, you know, I doubt it's much more than a few hundred uh, common names that have been given to the brightest stars in the sky. Many of these names you'd be familiar with. Sirius, Alpha Centauri, Vega, Capella, Rigel, uh, Betelgeuse, Altair, Spica, Deneb, Regulus. And then you have what's called the Bayer classification in 1603. It only pertained to stars visible to the unaided eye, which there's two or three thousand. And it's simply Greek letters followed by the constellation name. There's 24 Greek letters. And so you take the brightest star in the constellation, and that's Alpha. So if we look at the constellation Ursa Minoris, that's the little bear, Alpha Ursa Minoris would be the, the brightest star in that constellation. Beta Ursa Minoris would be the second brightest star. Gamma would be the third, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, etc., all the way down through the 24 letters of the Greek alphabet. This is commonly used by amateur astronomers. I've used this myself frequently, the Bayer designation. Rarely do you need to go any deeper than this. There are many creative license plates that use the Bayer. I remember I was in Chicago years ago, and my wife and I were driving somewhere, and I saw this. We were at a stoplight, and there was a car in front of us. I said, dear, look, that car. Look at the license plate. And she said, well, what's, what about it? I said, do you, do you realize the significance of that license plate? And she didn't. It was a vanity plate that said A. Lyrae. I said, you know what A. Lyrae is? She said, no. I said, that stands for Alpha Lyrae, which is the star commonly called Vega. And that automobile was at Chevrolet Vega. So vanity plates don't really accomplish their purpose, to, uh, I think, in, in many cases. Have you ever been behind a vanity plate and you didn't understand the message that they were trying to communicate? That happens to me a lot. <laughs> and then the Flamsteed designations. These are not commonly in use, but there's 2,682 stars visible to the unaided eye, according to Flamsteed. So he takes a number followed by the constellation name, not a, not a Greek letter, but a number. And the number is based on the right ascension. That's its position in the sky, left to right. So he goes to the basically the left side of the constellation with the brightest stars, one, two, three, four, and he moves his way across to the right. It doesn't really have to do with brightness. It has to do location in the constellation. This is, I can tell you, rarely do people use the Flamsteed numbers. Bayer are very common among amateurs. Neither one of these is used by professionals. They use the catalogs. So like 61 Cygni is the 61st star going left to right in the constellation Cygnus. That star, by the way, is a very historic star because that is the first star in 1838. Wilhelm Basel measured trigonometric parallax and thereby that distance could be computed accurately. We'll come back to that awesome story in a later chapter. The problem, the constellation boundaries have shifted, and that's thrown these ancient catalogs into some disorder, especially the Flamsteed. So it's, it's really hardly ever used. But the modern designations for stars are in the catalogs. And there's a number of these catalogs that have been put together by astronomical associations, such as the SAO, uh, the Smithsonian Astronomical Observatory, 250,000 stars 
using this designation right here, like SAO 36262. I've used that many times. But I'll tell you what, uh, professionals even don't use this uh, much anymore. It was popular 10 or 20 years ago. You got much more popular today professionally the Hubble Guide Star Catalog, which includes 19 million stars out of 10 to the 22nd power stars. So just a fraction. And these are all in our galaxy. Here's a typical example, GSC 12341132. It's not too romantic, is it? So, again, to summarize, the common names, there may be a few hundred of those. The Bayer, several hundred. The Flamsteed, what he considered to be every visible star, of course, from the northern hemisphere, 2,600. You multiply that for the southern, and that ends up with your five to 6,000 probably total visible stars on, from planet Earth with the naked eye. The Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, the SAO, quarter million, published in 1996, now largely outdated. And then the Hubble Guide Star Catalog. Originally, this catalog was created and still is used to guide the Hubble Space Telescope in its uh, trajectory and its imaging. Uh, 435 million. Then you have the United States Naval Observatory, also called the UCAC, which is an acronym which I believe stands for, if I recall, the, Unite, the uh, United States Naval Observatory CCD Astrograph Catalog. Summarized a UCAC, a billion stars, just a fraction of the stars in our galaxy. We probably have, and we'll come back to this topic in a later chapter, the conventional wisdom is two to 300 billion, but the fact is we could have trillions of stars in our galaxy because what we've learned in recent years is the vast majority of stars are not even visible to us because they're very low luminosity stars. And only the biggest telescopes doing dedicated searches can begin to see some of these things. The closest star that we know of past our own, as I said, is 4.2 light years. We may, ha we may have dozens or hundreds closer than that that we can't see. Red dwarfs, brown dwarfs, subluminous stars. So here we go. Let's take a look at some of these constellations. Here is Aldebaran. A very, that's a common name. It's also... You see the A, the Alpha, Alpha Tori. It's 87. That's the Flamsteed number. So the Alpha is the Bayer. The 87 Tori is the uh, Flamsteed. Aldebaran's the common. Okay, here's another constellation, Leo, the lion. Now here's the common names for each one of those stars. Here's the Bayer names for each one. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, etc. Here's the Flamsteed. And I'm sorry, I said... Uh, left to right. It's actually uh, west to east. So you're going right to left from the constellation boundary. So the lar here's one, and then you're moving this way to 94, for example. Uh, SAO designations, Hubble Guide Star Catalog designations for those same stars, all five designations, just to use one of these stars, for example, Regulus, a very, po very bright uh, star in the spring. And you can see all these names here. Common, Bayer, Guide Star Catalog from Hubble, etc. Here's a picture I took a few years ago of the what's called the Ring Nebula, planetary nebula. Uh, it's a star that exploded long ago, and we see a remnant of it right there, which is what's called a white dwarf star. Here I just have overlaid, I've aligned my picture to a planetarium observatory software program 
And then I can click on star designations and find out what all those stars are in the field. How many of you have had a star named after you? You see those advertisements? Name a star. Have you seen those? Have you bought one from mom? Don't. Here's the International Star Registry. Name that star after your mom or dad. It's, it's a scam. 54 bucks. They've sold over a million of these things, so they're making a lot of money from them. And I talked to a lady who has read some of my articles on astronomy. She was from Texas or someplace. She called me, and she was so excited that she bought a star for her husband. I said, ma'am, that is a scam. She would not believe it. And she said, when I look up at the sky, I'm going to think one of those stars is my husband's star. <laughs> I said, I hate to tell you, ma'am, but it's not. <laughs> Number one, you can only see 2,000 stars. And every one of those has been bought. So uh, you would need a massive telescope to see your star. And uh, we don't even know where it is because it's not recognized by, any, by the International Astronomical Union that designates star names. It's only recognized by the International Star Registry, which is worthless. It's a joke. She wouldn't believe it. Well, I'm going to still believe that. I said, well, you go ahead. Here's their disclaimer on the Star Registry website. Will the scientific community recognize my star? No. We're a private company that provides gift packages. Astronomers will not recognize your name because your name is published only in our star catalog. We periodically print a book called Your Place in the Cosmos, which lists the stars that we have named. So it's a scam, and there's much more I could talk about with regard to that. And here's, here's a great thing you can do, a little, a little test. Go to five or six of these registries and buy the same st star with five or six different names. They'll be glad to sell it to you. So some of these stars have multiple names. Five popular holiday shopping scams in bankrate.com, one of them naming the star. Here's the problem. Stars are named by the International Astronomical Union, and they aren't selling. Names for stars, most are numbers, are assigned according to international accepted rules. Every, anyone else who claims to be able to name stars has no more legal standing than your neighbor's Rottweiler. Uh, when they say, oh, but your star is going into a registry, they mean whatever registry they create, not, the, not any official star catalog that is used by astronomers. Let's talk about angular measurement. It's an important concept. Astronomers use angular dimensions to describe the apparent width and separation of objects. We'll do that frequently in this class. And it's an important concept to be introduced here, angular measurement. And it has to do with the geometric concept of degrees, minutes, and seconds of a circle. So one degree is uh, 60 minutes or 3,600 arc seconds, all right? That's just in one degree. The meridian, which is the imaginary line that goes from north to south straight overhead, that arc is half the sky. That's called the meridian. And that is exactly 180 degrees or 10,800 arc minutes or 648,000 arc seconds. Again, a minute is just 1 60th of a degree, and a second is 1 60th of a minute. So it's, it's helpful to say, like, the moon is 30 arc minutes in apparent diameter. And again, we're talking about apparent size. These have nothing to do with actual measurements. 
And so there's the meridian. It goes from north to south. There's north, there's south, going straight overhead, what's called the zenith, 180 degrees. One, it turns out that one arc minute is about the smallest size that the human eye can see. That's basically the width of the planet Venus when it's, it's, when it's brightest. One arc second is the equivalent, which is one sixtieth of a minute, is the equivalent of a quarter three miles away. Think about that. The angular size measures the apparent width as nothing to do in and of itself with the actual size. But it's nevertheless an important component, as we'll see. The sun and moon are each 30 minutes wide, but are they the same? That's a half a degree. But are they the same size? Let's take a look here. It's really just an unbelievable, if I might say extraordinary, fact that the sun is exactly 400 times wider at the diameter than the moon, but it's exactly 400 times farther away from us than the moon. And that's why the two disks appear to be virtually identical in size. And uh, if you measure them, they're each half a degree or 30 arc minutes. What, what does that mean? If you had full moons going from north to south or east to west, going straight overhead from one horizon to the other, it would take 360 of them because that's 180 degrees, and these are half a degree in diameter. So does that mean the moon and the sun are the same size because they have the same angular dimension in the sky? Absolutely not. Or how about this? Here's the moon. These are all pictures I've taken. Uh, and this galaxy, in, uh, NGC 253, they both appear to be about the same size. Does that mean they're the same size? And the answer is no. They have the same angular size in the sky, the apparent size. One is 100 million light years across. The other is 2,000 miles across. Or here's the Orion Nebula and the moon. Same scale, they look kind of similar, but again, they're not. Or here's a good one, the moon and the Andromeda galaxy, the closest large galaxy to our own. It's a gigantic metropolis of hundreds of billions of suns. But it looks like it's just a little bit bigger than our moon. But actually, it's indescribably bigger. You look at the Sears Tower, 110 stories. And you stopped at a stoplight here, and look at it. It's about the same size as that lamp pole over there that's about 15 feet. Does that mean they're the same size? They have the same angular size at that moment, don't they? But that has nothing to do with reality. Okay, now it turns out, mathematically, you don't have to remember this, but it is interesting. I've used this many times in my own study, that if, if you uh, know any two of these three variables, the angular size that we've just been talking about, or the actual size, or the distance, if you know two of those, the third can be calculated using a very simple equation. The actual size equals 2,900 thousandths times distance times angular size in arc minutes. And so let me give you an example. We know that a galaxy has a measured distance of 20 million light years and an angular size of 10 arc minutes, which we can just look and measure. So what is its actual width? Well, using that simple equation, it tells us that it is 58,000 light years in diameter. That's how astronomers convert apparent width into actual width if they can compute the distance to that object. Now, when you're talking about something 58 million light years away, uh, 
it's not that easy to do. And we'll talk about measuring sticks in space in a future chapter. Class, I can remember my junior high football coach used to tell us before every game, boys, can you think of any place you'd rather be than right here, right now? Well, I could, actually. But the point is, that's how I feel about this class. It's going to be an awesome journey of exploration for us. And I just hope I'm able to contribute some passion and enthusiasm that's going to be infectious. And it's going to light those fires Socrates talked about. Let's talk about the age of the universe for a few minutes, because that's an issue that's going to come up in this course repeatedly. There are different theories of cosmology. Uh, the vast majority of astronomers with PhDs, I'd say 99.9%, believe the following, that the universe began with a Big Bang 14 billion years ago. It's expanding, 75% dark energy, 20% dark matter. The most distant objects are about 14 billion light years away. That's the conventional conclusions of modern astronomy. The Catholic Church, and this is what I call column A, okay, the Catholic Church accepts those conclusions. The liberal mainline Protestant church accepts those. And then evangelical conservative is kind of divided between old earth and young earth. The, the old earth proponents believe A. The young earth reject all of A and believe the universe was created 6,000 years ago based on a literal reading of Genesis 1. Whatever you want to accept, it's fine with me. Uh, you'll not be, your grade will not be affected in the least bit if you believe the universe is 6,000 years old, which I'm sure some of you do. I would just ask you to be open to the evidence. But anyway, uh, here's, the, here's what I want to leave you with, is what I consider to be the uh, most important points. These are four views of creation that were described in a, in a study of the Presbyterian Church in America. It was kind of interesting. They talked about the, uh, the calendar day view, which is the six 24-hour days, uh, the day age, which are six days of creation describing periods of indefinite length, uh, and then the framework interpretation that Moses was using a metaphor of the week to narrate God's acts of creation, or the analogical day view, that the days of Genesis are God's work days, uh, analogous but not necessarily identical to human work days. Uh, and the conclusion of this study was, and I find this to be compelling, that when you look at the cardinal doctrines of the church, God created the cosmos and man, the fall, salvation only through faith in Christ, the authority of Scripture, and the second coming. You look at the calendar day view, they accept all of those. The day age, those are people that believe the days of creation describe long periods of time. They believe every one of those cardinal doctrines. The framework view, all of them. The Catholic Church, most of them. You know, you could quibble about salvation only through faith in Christ or the authority, the sola scriptura. The evangelical church would believe all of them. And so the point is, you know, I just would say let's not quibble and, and, oh, and fight over the age issue when we and miss the point of the commonality of belief in the essential doctrines of the church. But whatever you believe, class, is fine with me. It's not going to affect your grade in here. Just have an open mind as we go through these materials. Draw your own conclusions.